if you're the CFO of a public company and you want to make your profits go up, you really can't control easily your marketing or how many people are buying what you sell. But there are two things you can do to make your profits go up right away. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about delays, the supply chain, and promises. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. When is it time to level up? When is it time to learn a new way to see the world, to connect with others, to lead, to engage in possibility? Akimbo is a B Corp, an independently owned and operated institution designed around learning, not education, not certificates, not grades, but learning together. It works if you do the work. I hope you'll check out what the people at Akimbo are up to. Visit akimbo.com go to find out about their new upcoming workshops and how it all works. Thanks. You may have already guessed what the first thing is. The first thing is you should lower your inventory. You should eliminate slack everywhere you find it because you could see slack as your enemy. Your inventory, the stuff in the warehouse, the thing you've got 20 of, if you only had 10 of them instead of 20 just waiting for a customer to need it or someone in the shop to need a part, if you cut it in half, well then the cost of holding that inventory goes way down. And instead of having to borrow money to pay for the stuff that's in the warehouse not earning you any money, you can leave that money in the bank and make money. So suddenly, $5 million, $10 million, $20 million of work in process, of inventory goods, of slack in the system, when it disappears, that $20 million can turn right around and look really good on your balance sheet. CFOs love to do stuff like this because it makes them look smart. It makes them look smart until they come to understand that Slack was there for a reason. A long time ago, Eastern Airlines had a shuttle from Boston to New York City, back before there was Zoom and we were always in a hurry to get from Boston to New York City. And the way the shuttle worked, also to Washington, D.C., I don't want to leave them out. The way the shuttle worked is that some harried senator would get to the gate two minutes before 9 a.m., and the shuttle left at 9. But there were no reservations for the shuttle. And if you got there at two minutes to 9, they promised they would fly you to Washington, even if the plane was full. How could they do this? Well, the answer is they always had a second plane, an extra plane, just sitting there waiting. It was slack. If the first plane had a part problem, if it had a mechanical difficulty, no one fretted. You just got off the first plane, onto the second plane, and you were on your way. Slack serves a function. That a medical professional who is trying to maximize profit in the face of insurance companies and other problems doesn't schedule their day the way they used to. In the old days, perhaps you'd schedule six patients. And if a patient didn't show up, you were still going to have an okay day. If a patient took longer, it was fine because you had slack in the system things that didn't work, but you were fine because it was that empty space. But now, now that you've scheduled nine or 11 patients in a day, everything has to work. 
And if you've ever had a doctor's appointment at four o'clock in the afternoon, what you know is that everything never works. So right now, as we get ready for the holidays in the Western world, a time when our culture has taught us that shopping is the single most important thing we can engage in, I'm here to tell you, you should expect delays. You should expect delays because when slack goes out of the system and the supply chain gets a little stressed, the only alternative is delays. Paula Poundstone, one of my favorite stand-up comics, has a great bit that she made up on the spot about looms and loom makers. Yeah, it's probably easier with the loom. I think you're making the right choice there. This is what I love about the world. So you're a weaver, and you use a loom, which means that somewhere I could be talking to somebody and say, what do you do for a living? And they will say, I'm a loom maker. Don't you love that? I remember one day I had this epiphany when I was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, which is, I mean, a bridge just fascinates me anyways. And there's, there are these bolts, I guess it's called. That's the angular thing, right? That the big screw goes into, right? Oh, it's the nut? Yeah, this giant nut. And, and, that, and that's big, it's just huge, it's just big. And I think to myself, someone made that. Someone worked at a place that made that. And someone else worked at a place that made the thing that made that. I gotta tell you something, I was swerving all over the place. You may have seen that cars are in short supply, not because they're out of tires or rubber or steering wheels or those little ashtrays. Cars are in short supply because a $10 or $20 computer chip is in short supply. And in the old days, what they would do is just buy a lot of extra computer chips. Because if you, extra computer chips don't cost you that much, they don't take up very much space. And if something goes wrong in the supply chain, you're not going to end up with 10,000 Jeeps sitting in a parking lot unable to drive for want of a $20 part. But the CFO came along competing with all the other CFOs, public companies racing to the bottom, trying to extract every last penny, and they've ripped slack out of the system. And I said the CFO was doing two things. One of them is ripping out the slack, and the other one, a consequence of that, is weaseling. And if there are any weasels listening, I'm going to apologize to the weasel population for denigrating you by using the word weaseling, by weaseling out of the promises that brands make. Back when Federal Express was trying to persuade business people that instead of spending 25 cents on a first-class letter that would take three days, they should spend $12 on a FedEx envelope that would take one day, their guarantee was super clear. When it absolutely, positively has to be there overnight. That the legend was that one of their drivers faced with a snowstorm that closed the pass in Colorado rented a helicopter to get one package to where it needed to go because it absolutely, positively has to get there. Now, FedEx doesn't even answer the phone. Now, FedEx makes it extraordinarily difficult to complain about the fact that your package isn't there on time. And yes, people in the Western world, as privileged as so many of us are, are starting to embrace the fact that maybe it doesn't absolutely, positively have to be there overnight. That if we look at the offer that Amazon made all those years ago. Three parts. One, the best price. Two, every single book in the world. And three, and you'll have it tomorrow. 
Except now, not so much, because they're happy to blame anything they can, even when it's their own delivery service, for the fact that that package they sent you didn't arrive when they said it would. And the reason is because they've taken Slack out of the system. Amazon is sort of infamous for its fulfillment centers. They call them FCs, pushing people to urinate in a bottle when they're supposed to be taking a bio break, pushing people to work in ridiculous conditions so we can get the package tomorrow. If they had one more day to ship it out, a whole bunch of things get easier. But between the CFO and the promise of the miracle, companies are stuck. They're stuck because they either make a big promise and they keep it, which is expensive, or they weasel out of the promise. And what we are facing right now, when I warn you to expect delays, is that our fragile supply chain, which wasn't built with a centralized bit of control, like Darwinian evolution, no one is in charge, it just happens. But like Darwinian evolution, when the climate changes, when there are wildfires, when the mean temperature changes, suddenly the animals that evolved to be in one niche are having trouble in the new one. And these companies, the ones that have made promises around convenience, about reliability, about showing up to treat customers the way they wanted to be treated, they're going to get more and more stressed out of their minds. Of course, companies aren't people. The ones who are going to get stressed are the poor frontline workers, the poor person who's at a call center where every single sentence is being measured with a stopwatch. So perhaps we as consumers who are lucky enough to live in this world filled with wonders could do two things. The first one is plan ahead. Don't do your shopping at the last minute. And the second one is when you're dealing with the soft tissue of humanity at the front line, the one that has been pushed by the CFO and the nine layers of overpaid people between the CFO and that poor person on the front line, realize it's not their fault. The fault is the greed that led companies to extract the slack and to weasel out of a promise that we thought they were going to keep. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Reading Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I love to hear from you, and I could use some more questions. So if you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Two really juicy questions this week. Here we go. So you wanted more questions, and that that a re- reoccurring theme in the podcast is applying knowledge not letting the knowledge stay as knowledge, but to actually practice it and doing the work and shipping and uh, however else you put it. But how did you come to understand that that's actually one of the most important things, that uh, knowledge is worthless without the practice? And I suppose that's the definition of wisdom, right? To practice knowledge. It's funny, I've never thought about it this way, but you are correct 
that most of us are indoctrinated, pushed from an early age, to acquire something that is called knowledge. Usually, we acquire it simply because it's going to be on the test. When we're six years old, there really isn't enough cognition on our part to listen to an explanation as to why this is being done. But now that I think about it, there never is an explanation for why this is being done. And if you check out Stop Stealing Dreams, which is a free book I wrote at StopStealingDreams.com, along with a TEDx talk you can watch, you will hear my explanation, which is that companies, industrialists, pushed the system to normalize certain behaviors and to brainwash us into understanding certain things so that we would be more highly functioning employees. And because it's never really explained why we're learning X, Y, or Z, other than the fact that we are training to be obedient cogs, most people just grow up to be obedient cogs. And they wonder, will this be on the test? And we take this mindset to our work, whatever our work is. Will this be on the test? How do I get trained in this? How do I get certified in this? How can I prove that I learned what I was supposed to learn? But some people, and I am one of those lucky people, early on decide that what they really want to do is make something. That if making something, seeing a problem and solving it, finding an audience and serving them, putting something in the world, being able to say, here, I made this. If that is your goal, then you learn the things you learn so that you can make something. The practice. I learned how to sand a piece of cherry wood because I wanted to make a canoe paddle, not because there was a test on whether or not I knew how to sand a piece of cherry wood. That's a simple example, but we can multiply it by a thousand. And this is one of the reasons, and I'll talk about this in a future episode, why there's such a gap in programming. Because to be a programmer means that you can't ask, will this be on the test? To be a programmer means I have a problem. I need to make a commit to GitHub. I need to figure out something to solve this problem. What will I code? Well, that's not what they taught us in school. So I guess it's sort of intuitive on my part to talk about the practice to help people understand that the purpose of knowledge is to engage in a practice. It doesn't have to be specific, like I made a canoe paddle. It can be something as general as, I'm a better citizen, but there's still a practice. Thanks for this one. Hey, Seth, it's Tony from Albany, New York. The topic I bring before you today is residency requirements. I'd like to hear your thoughts on them and the future of them, especially given how much our tax structure and government services are tied to residency requirements. You know, like some services are very restrictive, like schools. Generally, you must live in a school district to attend their schools, but some are not, like libraries and parks. I can easily enjoy another municipality's park or library. Um, income tax is another. Like with Zoom, I can hire someone in Montana, but then I'm subject to withholding and submitting Montana income tax and following their workers' comp rules. I get why a village might want the mayor to live in the village she's representing, but you know, if she lives one house on the other side of the line, is that a big deal? Should she pay tax in that village to lead that village if the residents say that's who we want to lead us? And then you contrast that with someone with the resources to buy a home in our state 
just so that person could run to be the state senator. That person didn't live a meaningful day in our state, yet we elected that person to represent us in Congress. In government, you know, there's got to be a line. One side is New York, the other side is Vermont or even Canada. They're everywhere. Um, I live a quarter of a mile from an elementary school built on the fringes of a school district, but I live on the fringes of a neighboring district just across the line. So my son is bused 10 miles to his elementary school while he could walk to this other one every day. You know, it just doesn't seem to make sense. Thanks as always. Wow. This is a great question, and it is more relevant now than ever before because people are spending so much time simultaneously at home and digitally somewhere else. And Cory Doctorow wrote about this in his great book, Eastern Standard Tribe. But it goes something like this. If the people you work with all live in Estonia, does it matter that you don't? If the content that you are consuming is all made in California, does it matter that you don't? Some things we're never going to get past being local, things like the water supply or even the electricity that we consume or perhaps the roads or the local security around us. But more and more things, a greater percentage of our GDP, our output, our life, our time, a greater percentage is spent somewhere else. So I can look something up on the website of the Los Angeles Public Library. I do not pay them anything. I do not live in Los Angeles. What should we do about this? And then you bring up the second question, which I think is almost certainly unrelated, which is when a town goes to hire somebody to work in that town, does it matter where they live? Well, if we look at it from the town's point of view, there are two parts to this. One. What's the best bang for the taxpayer's buck? How do I hire somebody who gives great value? And then the second one is, how do I reward people who are my neighbors, who are local and show it through where they spend their time and where they spend their tax money? And I think both of them are important for things like police people, for people like elected officials, because that simple gap, that line, that thing that says you have to be a neighbor of somebody, seems like a reasonable filter. But I want to get back to the first question because I'm not sure I know the answer. I know that when we deal with carbon, when we deal with climate change, if we don't have a global solution, we have no solution. Because if you've got people who are cheating on the cohort, the cadre of countries that aren't cheating, it will undermine all of their work. But maybe the same thing is true for libraries. Maybe the same thing is true for lots of digital interaction. The fact is you pay taxes to Netflix to use their library, and if you don't, you can't. What a spectacular reorganization of the world it's going to be when we start looking at things outside of geography. That's a long ramble to say I'm not sure I have a glib, simple answer, but you've brought up a really urgent and important thing for us to think about. Thanks to everybody for listening. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker 
at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet. Like we have data. What All MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you gonna show up? When are you gonna face that blank page? When are you gonna face the possibilities within you? When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.